uh, we're going to return back to Nehemiah as we've been going through for the last uh, several weeks. Any of you here into architecture, like buildings, like cool-looking buildings and things like that, Look, like looking skyscrapers and things like that? There's, here's a picture of uh, a, a, a very well-known building. It's the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It is still currently the tallest building in the world. It is an architectural marvel. And believe it or not, they built it more or less in about four years. Um, they broke ground in 2004. They put the topper in 2008. Um, incredible. Incredible feat of architecture. One of my favorites locally is Disney Hall. Some of you have been there. The LA Philharmonic plays there. It's just, it, it's a weird looking building, but it's weird in, and beautiful at the same time, right? You might look at the Miu Viaduct in France and look at this architectural marvel. I mean, that's a little freaky if you ask me. I mean, I can't imagine driving off that thing. But people do, and it's beautiful. It's over there on the landscape. It's tasteful. And it must have been quite the headache to build. Another thing that kind of strikes me, there's this, there's this forest city that's planned. It's currently being built. The target date for completion is actually sometime next year or the year after. There's a forest city that they're building in China which is essentially intended to be a, a quote-unquote zero-impact city. In other words, it would absorb more carbon emissions than the whole city and all its transportation and technology would actually output. And it's basically built as a forest. It's a different way of looking at urban planning. Whenever you think about massive works of engineering, big challenges of creating these incredible building projects, you have to have a certain person or a certain group of people that really drives the thing, right? You have to have someone that has a vision or a plan, a master plan, if you will, of how this thing is going to turn out. Everybody could do their own little part, but if you're not kind of tying yourself to the master plan, then the whole thing is not going to fit together. It takes foresight. And to simplify it a bit, there has to be a master builder, as it were. Someone that is in charge. There may be hundreds, thousands of hands and feet that are participating in a project. But at the end of the day, it has to be tied to the original vision, the guiding principles of the project. Whether it be plumbing or electrical or construction of walls. There's an endless list of things that in projects like these people have to be in charge of, but it all has to fit. And everybody in some way or another has to look toward the master plan and the master builder, the one in charge. We are nearing the end of our foray in the book of Nehemiah. We have a couple more weeks. We've been exploring what it means for us as Christ followers to participate in building for the sake of God's kingdom here on earth, here in Simi Valley. To extend the metaphor a little bit, when it comes to building for the kingdom of God, we have a master builder. We have an originator of the plan, one who empowers us, as we've talked about in weeks past, one who empowers us to participate in the project. We've looked at the importance of serving, of committing our time and energy 
to be a part of this thing. We talked about being all in. We talked about the importance of prayer as the beginning point to our participation in what God is doing. And this morning, we're going to zoom through chapters 8, 9, and 10 in the book of Nehemiah. As we go through, we're going to see how important it is for the people to turn to the master builder, and consequently for us, how important it is for us for worship, turning to God, how central that is to our participation in what God is doing. Now, worship means more than just singing. Worship is central to everything that we do in participating in what God is doing on earth. Now, we sing, and of course, now some of you are holier than the rest of us, and you probably sing praise songs in your car in your morning commute. Some of the rest of us don't do that. Um, But worship isn't restricted to those spaces. Those spaces when you come to church, and all of a sudden, there's music playing, and you're singing along. That's just one small part of worship. Worship is a bigger category of the ways in which we turn to our master builder, the way that we turn to God. And there are three aspects, I think, that we see about worship in Nehemiah's chapters 8 through 10 that we're going to explore today, that we should integrate into our lives, that we can consider and we can reflect on in terms of our own lives. And the three areas are celebration, confession, and commitment. I don't normally always try to do those like, oh, it's all going to be start with the same letter. It just happened to do that. So don't like, uh, come like, oh, that's really creative. It was just, it just happened. Celebration, confession, and commitment. These are all parts of what it means to worship. Now, because we've got a lot of verses, the whole sermon, if, if if we were to read every verse, would just be reading the verses. Um, And so what we're going to do instead is we're going to highlight a few of the things as we go through the passage to get a good sense of what these chapters are about, what's happening in chapters 8 through 10. So let's begin in Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. All the gates had different names. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and others who could understand. In other words, children that were old enough to kind of get what was going on. That they would, who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving giving meaning so that the people would understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, And the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them, This day is holy, set apart to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
you might wonder, why were these people weeping? Why were they crying? And we've touched on the idea that in the book of Ezra, some people, as the temple was being rebuilt, some people looked at it, and it was just a shadow of the temple that had been once destroyed. And so they wept in memory of what had been lost. But what's going on here is a little bit different. The people who have come back to Jerusalem to repopulate the city, to rebuild the walls and eventually the homes inside, a lot of these people were what we would call the remnant, the people who still remained faithful to God. But yet even the remnant didn't have access to all of the book of the law. For centuries, after bad king and bad king, over and over again, the law of God became neglected in their communities. The priests no longer declared them out loud for the people to hear. And so while the faithful had an idea of what it meant for them to be the people of God, while the faithful kind of had a clue about how they were to live and the regulations and what was supposed to set them apart as a people of God, they knew basically what that was, they probably didn't know a lot of the details because the details had been lost through the centuries. And so here they were, listening to the words, all the words, and there had to been a realization, oh my goodness, we have fallen short. As we're going to see in the chapter next, There's a time of confession. But here, they're beginning to weep because they're realizing that, oh, this is what we were supposed to be doing this whole time? This is what God wanted for us? And they were beginning to mourn in sadness for what they and their people had failed to do. And yet here, in this reading of the word, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites, who were teaching them, said, hey, hold your horses. It's okay. Let's celebrate first. Let's celebrate first. Now is a time for feasting. Now is a time for celebration. Celebration. It's something that, if we look at ourselves carefully, a lot of Western Christians struggle with, at least in church. We like to do the solemn thing, put our hands in our lap, put our hands together. We like to do the reflective thing where the music is moving and we reflect on the things that we sing. We like to do the meditative thing where we sit and have quiet devotions by the fireside. We like to do the somber thing from time to time, but celebration in church? That's hard sometimes. I mean, it's not like we don't know how to celebrate, right? We know how to celebrate. We do it all the time in our culture. I'm longing for the day that this happens again. I don't know when it's going to be and when the Lakers are going to win another championship, but I will celebrate. And so will a lot of people in Southern California. We know how to celebrate. We throw parties. We throw confetti. We shout any time that we're at a sporting event and our team wins. Everybody is hooting and hollering and jumping up and down, yelling, shouting. We're excited. We celebrate. We know how to celebrate. 
when we go to music concerts, we're shouting and hollering and, and with our hands up in the air, almost as if we're worshiping, but we are celebrating. Now, I'm gonna, that's a whole other commentary some other time. But we go into that mode where we do know how to celebrate. We do know how to clap our hands. We do know how to raise our hands and wave them in the air. We do know how to do that. When we have family functions and people gather together and have a good time together, we know how to celebrate. We know how to eat good food and share that with one another and be merry and joyful together. But why not with God? Why not with God's word? Why not celebrate when we realize the depth of love and grace that we receive through Jesus Christ? Now, this is not a guilt trip for us in terms of how we should behave in church, because I'm speaking to myself as well. It's easy for some reason in our culture, we've created a church culture in which we kind of want to sit on our hands. You know, in the Old Testament, whenever you hear about people leading in worship and worshiping together, like Miriam in, in Exodus, there's tambourines, there's dancing, people waving things around. You see King David dancing in the streets, maybe a little bit inappropriately, but he's dancing in the streets because he's excited and he's worshiping. That's a part of the worship culture in the Bible and something that for some reason or another we seem to feel like when we're in church there has to be a certain level of decorum. The people in the story of Nehemiah, when they were building the wall and after they had finished it, they heard the word of God and they were encouraged to celebrate. And so they worshiped with their hands up in the air, with their faces bowed low, with feasts and food and sharing with one another. They even set up temporary shelters and tents so they could all keep on celebrating together and share food. It's kind of like a massive party. The scene when I read about them setting up temporary shelters reminds me of music festivals, right? I mean, people go and gather out on these big fields, set up these temporary shelters. It's kind of like that, except less drugs, right? But it's like that environment where people are going and just having a good time together. That's what was going on here. And if, in fact, if you look in the Old Testament, this was kind of the festival of the booths or the tents. They were coming together. The whole idea was, let's pitch our tents together, share food, and celebrate. Celebration. It's not just partying for party's sake but it's celebrating the realization and the reality that God has spoken to them and God has spoken to us, and that is worth celebrating. We hoot and holler when a kid blows out two measly little candles. I, I, I say this as a parent of a two-year-old. That really is not a huge accomplishment. It's just two candles. But if we could celebrate that, cannot we also celebrate God? Hmm? Let's celebrate the fact that the architect of our faith is alive and real and continuing to work in this world to bring people to God and to build God's kingdom here on earth. Celebration, one aspect 
of worship that we see in Nehemiah. We're going to move now into Nehemiah chapter 9 and explore a different side of worship. Beginning in verse 1 in chapter 9, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and now wearing sackcloths and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from the foreigners. Now, I want to pause here because I think this is important for us to know what's going on here in this scene. There, first of all, we have to observe, there were foreigners among them. For all the work of having to create a city identity, there wasn't the sense that foreigners were being kept out of their walls, because as we have discussed, the people of Israel were to be a blessing to the nations. And so there were people within their walls experiencing life with them as God followers. The second thing I think that's important to note here is that the separation that they're creating here had a specific purpose. And that was the people of Israel were about to go into a process of recognizing their own sins. And it was the sins of Israel, not the sins of some other nation, not the sins of their guests in their city. It was their own, and they needed to come together and own it. They had baggage. Sure, the foreigners in their land also had baggage of their own from their own cultures and their own societies. But here, the people of Israel were doing something very specific. They were confessing. They were acknowledging God for what God had done and how faithful God had been to them and yet how unfaithful their people, the ancestors of Israel, had been in return. Confession wasn't about pointing fingers to other people because after all, the foreign nations of the people that were around these people were ones that conquered Jerusalem, ones that exiled the people of Israel, ones that did wrong to the people of Israel. Yet in this space, the people of Israel were not pointing fingers at them. Look at what you have done now. We've got to rebuild this thing. No, they said, okay, we're going to look at ourselves and own it. In this corporate space, the people of God gather together, speak to God, coming to God in worship to confess. Confession is a central part of our worship. It's the acknowledgement that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the acknowledgement that in one way or another, we have behaved badly, that we have acted selfishly in our own self-interest, that we have thought of things selfishly or lustfully, that we have wasted our money, or that we have been tight-fisted and not generous with our wealth. We have not been forgiving. Now, those things are all individual things. But confession, at least in this text, goes far beyond that. If you read through, and I encourage you to take some time to read through these verses, if you read through chapter 9, you may be struck as I am that most of the things that they confess here in this text 
were things that the people that were there present at that time had not done. They were things that their ancestors had done. They were things that people had, been, had done hundreds of years ago. And at the end of this long confession, there's this phrase in verse 36 in which the people say, because of our sin, it's ours. Even though it really had nothing to do with the, the specific actions of the individuals present, it was theirs as a people. Do you ever think about that? What does it mean for sin to be ours? I think that's a really difficult thing for us in our society because in the West, we are trained to be individuals. We talk about Western individualism. It's one of those things that in philosophy and in social studies and social science, we observe it's pretty well-known fact that we tend to be individualistic in the way that we approach life. There was a playwright uh, out of Norway um, who once, once said this, the strongest man in the world is he who stands most alone. Individualism, the strength of the individual person, the strength of our individual wills. Be yourself, be unique, be whoever you are meant to be. There was even that phrase, the army of one. What? The army of one is not an army at all. It's a soldier. Right? But we give in to this idea that the individual is what matters. And so when we think about corporate confession, that's a difficult concept to understand. Right? It's a little bit strange. Oscar Wilde put it like this. Art is individualism. And individualism is a disturbing and disintegrating force. In other words, there are ways in which our individuality makes it impossible or very difficult for us to come together and be as one. What was happening for the people of Israel here as they were gathered at the celebration of the wall was they were being as one people. They were extending themselves to embrace what their people had done. And that's hard for us. We can acknowledge that. That's not easy. What does it mean for us in an individualistic society like ours to own our sins, our shortcomings? We don't like to think about the history of slavery in the United States as ours, but it is. We don't like to go, even going back centuries, we don't like to think about the Crusades in which Christians went out and held Muslim people by knife saying, convert or die. We don't like to think about that as ours. Incidentally, a lot of scholars look at that, those events, and look at those as the genesis of some of the strife that continues to this day. We're not going to go into a huge history lesson here, but we can go through our history textbooks and look over and over again, not just for our nation and how our nation has fallen short of the glory of God, but how God's people in our nation have fallen short, how Christians have fallen short 
of what we were meant to be as God's representatives, as participants in building for the sake of God's kingdom. Our history texts are riddled with it. Our tendency, my tendency, is to see those things and keep them at arm's length and say, you know what, those people made a bad mistake. Rather than say, Lord, we have sinned. My people have sinned. Corporate confession. What does it mean to acknowledge our sins as a community? What does it mean for us to think of our shortcomings and confess them to God? Confession. It's an important part of our worship, just as celebration is. And as we continue through Nehemiah, moving into chapter 10, we see yet another part of the story. We see that there is commitment to be had. Now, there's a whole list of things that happen in Nehemiah chapter 10. They start to say, we are going to do this. We are going to do that. We promise to do this. We're going to assume this is our responsibility. In other words, they have spent time in celebration. They have moved through confession. And now they're turning to God and say, okay, we are going to make some commitments now. This is how our lives are going to be lived. We are going to do something about what we have worshipped about. We're going to do something about it. We're going to change something. We assume the responsibility, it says. We determine that each of our families will do such and such. We assume this responsibility. Moreover, we will bring these things to the temple. We will not neglect the house of the Lord. There is this continued refrain, and their details are different in each of the different commitments. But what's common in all of them is that they are establishing for themselves things that they will do that are very practical in giving up of themselves for the sake of the worship of God. They make lots of commitments, and a lot of them have to do with the temple, supplying the temple with the grain and the supplies for the sacrifices, caring for the, and providing enough food for the Levites and sharing. There's a lot of things that happen in here. They're committed to giving their resources, their time, their wealth, so that worship would not cease in that place. Worship is more than just singing songs, right? It's more than just prayers of confession. Worship includes the determination that you and I have to say we will use whatever we have to bring glory to God. I will use my resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. I will use my work my schooling, my studies. I will use what I have and offer that to God. It's as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in response to God's mercy and grace, to offer your bodies, your physical form, the things that you do, your work, your resources, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, worship goes beyond the singing. It includes celebration, confession, and a commitment of our lives and resources. It's a whole being sort of commitment. 
This part is what the people promise in Nehemiah chapter 10, to not forget to commit it all for the sake of what God is doing there in their community. This is something I feel like at times I struggle with, and I'll be honest with you. It's easy to forget to give. Now, in the time of the rebuilding of the temple, they were worried that their people would eventually be like their forebearers were, neglecting the temple, neglecting to care for it, neglecting it to the point that the word no longer is read there. They were worried about that, and so they were committing themselves to making sure that that never happened. But even in my own life, I find it easy to forget to give. Now, a lot of our charitable giving uh, is done automatically or automatic debit through our credit card or through our bank account. Um, The children that we sponsor uh, are supported in this way. But, you know, every so often, credit cards expire, right? It's just (laughs) the fact of life. That's just what happens. There's a date on the card. And I don't usually pay attention to that date until it comes, and then things are being declined. Well, Sometimes I'm proactive and I figure out what needs to be done. But there have been times where either the credit card expired or I just lost the wallet and we have to redo all our credit cards that I forget to change everything. You know, I'm quick to change the billing, right? I'm quick to take care of the utilities, to make sure that that's taken care of. I'm quick to do some of those things so that our kids can continue to go to their extracurricular activities. But sometimes I forget to change the billing for the ministries that we support. And then you get that email saying, "Um, we would like to inform you that your credit card has been declined. And when that happens, I feel sad. How did I forget about that? But the reality is it is easy for us to forget to give. It's easy for us to prioritize the other things in life because really a lot of those other things feel more urgent and feel more pressing. And yet, here in Nehemiah chapter 10, the people said, we are not going to let that happen. Yes, they do not have a whole lot of food. Yes, they don't have a whole lot of resource. But they say, you know what? Whatever we can do, we are going to commit to giving to the temple and supporting the temple. They commit their lives to the rebuilding of the kingdom there, to the establishment of the people of God so that the people would know about God. Commitment. Celebration, confession, and commitment. These are three aspects of worship that are central to our engagement and our participation with God because at the end of the day, when we turn our eyes away from the master builder, then it's like building something with no direction. It's like building church here with no purpose at all. We turn to God and focus our eyes on God because God is the master builder, the originator of the master plan, the one who accomplishes it through us. Worship is important because it tunes our heart. It's a constant reminder that we lower ourselves and raise God up. It's a constant reminder for us that the resources that we have are a gift from God. 
It's a reminder that we are participants in a bigger plan and that we ought to align ourselves with our master builder. Now, we all might struggle differently in terms of which part of worship is harder for us. Some of you find it very hard to celebrate, and I totally get it. Some of you find it difficult to engage in confession, or you may be challenged to think about what, what does it even mean for me to confess the sins of my people. For some of you, it's a struggle to be committed to giving or committed to serving or committed to participate. We each have our own struggles, and so for us, the response will be different from one person to another. You have some suggestions on the back of your um, Connect card. If some of those resonate with you, go ahead and check a box. This is not something that we come back to you and say, hey, did you do this? But this is just a way for you to say, mostly to yourself, this is what I would like to do. We could set aside time to read passages of Scripture and celebrate that with friends and family. We might need to spend some time reflecting on our society or our people as Christians and confess those to God. We might need to make some commitments to make some sort of specific change in our life so that we could better represent or invest in what God is doing in our world. Whatever it is, let's do something to worship with our whole lives. Let's celebrate God. Let's confess our sins. And let us commit together to work for God's purposes. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in this task of building for your kingdom here on earth, that we are not alone. That there is a master plan and a master vision and a master builder that is you. Lord, would you align our hearts to you through worship. Lord, help us to celebrate you. Help us to confess our sins and be honest and own it. Help us, God, to be committed to your work. And Lord, in that, Lord, would you build for your kingdom here in Simi Valley through us. In Jesus' name, amen.